episode 34, Lone Shoe. I'm Assistant Curator Merle Riedel, and you're listening to an August 1st, 2007 podcast from the Kansas Historical Society. In this podcast, museum staff reveal the story behind the story about artifacts featured on the Cool Things section of our website, kshs.org. Welcome to another episode in our series dedicated to objects from the museum's current exhibit, Game Faces, Kansans and Sports. One mile in four minutes. Many thought it was beyond human endurance. One runner from the University of Kansas disagreed, and he wasn't alone. Join Assistant Registrar Nikayla Zimmerman and I as we examine a track shoe worn by Olympic athlete Wes Santee in the 1950s. Did this shoe shatter a time barrier no one thought could be broken? And did it lose its mate along the way? Later, in Six Degrees of William Allen White, we'll do the unthinkable. We'll connect William Allen White to Harry Potter by way of the Nazis. But first, Lone Shoe. Santee shoe, which was the subject of your last Cool Things article. That is correct. Can you start out by telling us what the shoe looks like? Yes. Um, it is one shoe, not a pair of shoes. It is one lone shoe by himself. Aww. It is red and white leather, uh, has a real thin sole to it, um, and it has um, six or seven half-inch long steel spikes protruding from the front of the sole. It is a lace-up shoe. And it is made by Caru, a Finnish company. Um, the shoe belonged to Wes Santee. Um, tell us who Wes Santee is and what he's most known for. Uh, Wes Santee was a famous middle distance runner at KU. Middle distance being not five miles and uh, not a short sprint, but a middle distance. Um, and in this case, usually a mile is what he's running. Santee was born in Ashland, Kansas in 1932. Uh, he grew up on a farm. He grew up with a uh, sort of an abusive father, and that's kind of, um, I think, I think what maybe sparked the running was uh, it gave him a sense of escape from his um, abusive father. Father wasn't real supportive of him running. Um, in high school, he had a coach that uh, sort of discovered him and pushed him to run. His father was resilient. But uh, Santee found a way to run, and he broke a mile record, which brought him to the attention of some coaches at, in Kansas, uh, one of those coaches being uh, Bill Easton um, at KU, who sort of became a father figure for Santee once Santee started going to KU. And while there... Uh, Santee was the premier miler. Uh, he also ran cross country. He was pretty much the anchor of KU's track team for the 1950s. Um, he was also part of a growing tradition at KU of uh, middle distance runners, a tradition that began in the 1930s with Glenn Cunningham and uh, Jim Ryan, who would sort of succeed uh, Wes Santee, uh, all three phenomenal runners. Um, Santee actually uh, ran in the 1952 Helsinki Games, and uh, he even helped KU win a couple conference titles. Um, Later on, after his running career, he served in the Marine Corps as a colonel. And uh, as a profession, he pretty much uh, operated an insurance company for the rest of his life. Um, but what is he best known for? He is best known for being part of a three-man global competition <laughs> to beat the four-minute the four mile, which sort of was a monumental barrier to all runners of the day. 
Um, and it was a very public competition as well. And the people involved were Roger, Roger Bannister of Great Britain, John Landy of Australia, and West Santee of the United States. And the competition sort of began in earnest following the 1952 Helsinki Games. Um, they all three competed, but none of them did uh, none of them did well at all. And they all went home disappointed. And each one of them decided that they were going to redeem themselves from their poor performance at the Games by beating the four-minute barrier. And uh, Santee, who was also very arrogant, very cocky, he would tell you this stuff himself. Uh, he was very, he was probably the most verbal of the three. The newspapers loved him. Publicity loved him. Um, right after the 52 games, he went to the school newspaper at KU, bust through the door, and said, I'm going to beat the four-minute mile, and I'm going to be the first one to do it. Um, so that went on for a couple years, and they each sort of challenged each other. They ran races, you know, uh, Landy would run races in uh, Australia, Bannister would run races in Europe, and Santee uh, would run races in the United States, and they all kept inching closer to four minutes and inching closer to four minutes. Finally, in 1954, Roger Bannister, Roger Bannister beat the four-minute mile barely by running three minutes and 59 seconds. I say barely, I mean, that's like a huge feat to be able to do that. Um, but he didn't hold that record for very long because... Because a couple months later, John Landy actually beat that record um, with a minute of three minutes and 58 seconds. Track athletes nowadays, you know, there are multiple athletes who've run a mile in less than four minutes. Why was running a mile in such a short amount of time such a big deal back then? Uh, Because people believed that it could not be done. A lot of people felt that running a mile in less than four minutes was beyond human ability. Running began as a sport with the Romans. They ran. And um, it sort of evolved uh, at a slow pace until the mid-19th century. Um, and that's when you see, you see the Olympian movement and you see amateur athletes becoming very organized. And that's when mile times start really dropping is because they're figuring out how to train the body and they're figuring out how to be more effective, getting better times. So it starts making uh, big leaps, big drops in time. Um, until you get to about four and a half minutes. And that's when it slowed down and people couldn't seem to go beyond. Um, uh, It became very difficult when approaching the four-minute mile. So people said, well, the reason that's difficult is because you can't do it. The human body cannot handle it. And some people actually believed that the four-minute mile was dangerous for athletes to try to compete. That if they did, they, if they did beat in the, if they did it in less than four minutes, their body would collapse and they would die. So some people got mad at Santee and Landy um, for even trying, even wasting time attempting to do it. You mentioned at the Helsinki Olympics, Wes Santee ran. Um he competed, but he ran the 5,000 meter instead of the 1,500. Um, why did he do that? That was the result of a continued dispute with the AAU, which is the Amateur Athletic Union. It's sort of the governing body, or it was the governing body for pretty much all athletics in the United States, all athletics that weren't pro athletes. So these guys set the rules, and they controlled the meets of of collegiate competitions, of Olympic competitions, and they really sort of had a monopoly on the athletes, and they controlled the livelihood of the athletes, pretty much held their destiny in, in their, the AAU officials held the destiny of the athletes. So Wes Antee, I mean, he could run, he was a cross-country runner, he could run the 5,000 meter, he could run cross-country, he could r- run the 1,500, but his best event was the 1,500, which is the metric mile. So he went to the Olympic trials, had planned on qualifying in the 5,000 meter run and the 1,500 meter run. He ran the 5,000 meter, qualified, did that first, he was lining up to run the 1,500 meter, and the Olympic uh, officials, or the AAU officials came up to him and said, you can't run in two events at the Olympics. You can only run in one, and you've already qualified in the 5,000 meter. 
millimeter, that's what you'll be running in, which was ridiculous because other athletes had ran in multiple events in previous Olympics. But the AAU sort of had it out for West Santee because, like I said, he was really verbal. And he knew that the AAU was screwing, was kind of, I don't want to say screwing. (laughs) He knew that they were exploiting athletes, and he didn't like it, and he didn't hesitate to say it in public. So the AAU was trying to manipulate him, trying to get him to be quiet. Okay, so he didn't do it at the Helsinki Games. But did Santee ever break the four-minute mile? He never did. He never did. He was beat to it by a banister and Landy. They got to it first. And he actually, the closest he came, he came really close. In 1955, he ran the mile in four minutes and five-tenths of a second. There was a couple competitions where he came in within a couple tenths of a second of beating, of running it under four minutes. But um, he actually never got the chance to actually do it because his career was cut cut short by the AAU officials who disqualified him from competing in amateur athlete athletics in 1956. And they said it was because he had received payment from some people during the games. So you've met Santee, right? Correct, I did. We, 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 I interviewed him, yes. How does he feel about this now? Does he still feel exploited? Or? He is still very staunch against the AAU. And how does he feel about his performance in the mile? Does he feel like he accomplished something great, or is he still disappointed? He's still disappointed. I mean, you can hear it in his voice. Um, He still feels like he could have done it. He felt strongly that he could have beat both Landy and Bannister in a three-way race. He would have been the winner. So he felt like he... He was. I think he's a little disappointed in himself, maybe, but he's really disappointed that the AAU um, never allowed him to continue trying. And another problem was, and it's hard. I think he feel, he always felt a little conflicted because, as an Australian athlete and as a European athlete, Bannister and Landy they would only run a couple runs a year. Mm-hmm. They weren't part of a team, um, and and. West Santee at KU was running every weekend. Mm-hmm. So he and he was running relays. He was the anchor on the relay. So he had to be very committed to his team because he loved his team. But as if he was committed to his team, he sort of never got the he didn't get as much opportunity to excel in his own event. Mm-hmm. You mentioned before the manufacturer of the shoe was Keru. Um, can you tell us more about the company and if they made this shoe especially for Santee? Right. Well, Keru is an athletic manufunct- manufacturing company in Finland. So you think, okay, um, a Finnish company, he must have picked them up or wore them while he was at the 1952 Helsinki Games. Well, not necessarily. Keru was a pretty well-known athletic company. And I think that uh, Santee actually got the shoes probably when he was maybe a junior, senior in high school or early on in his career at KU because they're sort of an older style of shoe. Mm-hmm. Um, we have another shoe. He Santee donated this shoe and another one, and the other one is a black shan- a black sh- a black track spike made in Japan, and it's a newer design. And um, I think that's what he wore at the 1952 games. And that design is really interesting because the shoe had to be really tight. And what he would do for that style of shoe is he would actually take a piece of paper, draw an outline of his foot, <laughs> and send a stinky piece of paper <laughs> to a shoe cobbler in Japan who would make the track spike and send it back to him. Just to give you an idea why they wear the spikes, um, at the beginning of the 20th century, um, tracks were basically dirt tracks, and they were surfaced with um, cinder, which is sort of a ground-up pumice stone. And the cinder is used to, uh, number one, to hold the dust down while they're running. Number two, it, they would roll it with a big, heavy roller, so it was a firm surface, but it was also a little bit softer to land on, so it would absorb some of the shock. Mm-hmm. So to mitigate that surface, they started wearing track spikes, which gave them additional 
traction and would increase their times.、Um, the Trax bike had been around, but the first person to sort of commercially produce it was a nam was a German man a German shoemaker <laughs> named Adolf. They're always named Adolf.、Um, um, Adolf, which was shortened to Addy Dazzler. And he manufactured shoes、uh, starting in the 1920s, and he、uh, tried to market them and promote them. Promote them, and finally, in 1936, he convinced Jesse Owens、um, at the Berlin Games.、Um, so it's real close to where、uh, Dazzler lives. He convinced Jesse Owens to wear these shoes. So it's sort of a weird early form of athletic sponsorship. And、mm-hmm. Jesse Owens convinces、uh, a couple of the other teammates to wear the shoe as well. That's when Addy Dazzler's company sort of takes off from theirs because he starts this clever. Promotion process, and the company does quite well actually, because later a company founded by a man named Addy Dazzler becomes Adidas. So Jesse Owens was the first sponsor or、uh, person to represent Adidas running shoes. Exactly,、Very、that's、cool. right. That's right. And so there's also a connection between Adidas and this early company that made our shoe here, the West Santee shoe,、um, the Caru shoe.、Um, You'll notice on this shoe that there is a logo on it that is a bear,、mm-hmm. a polar bear, which would make sense because a bear caru、uh, is Finnish for bear.、Uh, but that wasn't always caru's logo. Previously, they had a different one.、Um, it was three vertical stripes. But、uh, at some point in the 1950s, for some reason, this company, according to corporate mythology, the company sold this logo. To the company of Adidas, who now owns the rights to this three vertical band trademark, and they sold it to Adidas for sixteen、uh, hundred Deutschmarks and two bottles of good whiskey. Yeah, what a deal! <laughs> That's what I thought. Yeah, obviously Adidas did a little bit better than Kru because we've all had Adidas shoes, but we can't even、you、just don't see Kru very often. <laughs> Okay, so as you mentioned, West Santee has given two shoes to our collections, and they don't make a set. Each is、uh, one shoe. Yep, two lone shoes. Two lonely. So if you know where、shoes. their mates are, let <laughs> us know. If you've seen a lonely track spike, give us a call. <laughs> you've seen a lonely Kru shoe. <laughs> You'll know it because it looks like a bowling shoe.、Um, this leads me to think: Would Santee have had a better chance of breaking the four-minute mile if he'd worn two shoes? That is a good question. <laughs> I think you can extrapolate this further. If you can wear two shoes and do even better, why not wear three shoes or four shoes,、mm-hmm. and you could do even better? <laughs> But bottom line is, I think he would have had a better chance had he not wore shoes that look like bowling shoes. Yeah, weighs you down a little bit, doesn't it? That's right. <laughs> All right, thanks, bro. This weekend at the Sundown Film Festival, the museum will be showing Brian's song. Last week we showed Hoosiers, a film based on a 1954 Indiana high school basketball team. Recently, Hoosiers was voted best sports movie of all time by readers of USA Today and deemed culturally significant by the Library of Congress. For one Topeka boy, though culturally significant, failed to capture the film's essence. The following was recorded on July 20th, halfway through the showing of Hoosiers at the Sundown Film Festival. My name is Christy Adams, and I'm from Topeka. Okay, and 
you're here at the Sundown Film Festival watching the movie Hoosiers. Have you ever watched Hoosiers before? Yes, actually I've probably watched it 40 times because my four-year-old son absolutely loves the movie and has probably three-fourths of it memorized. He loves the movie Hoosiers? Yes. Any particular, is he just a Gene Hackman fan? Um, no, he's a real sports nut and he loves the action in it when they're playing the games. Right, yeah, it's great. It progressively gets more exciting. Uh-huh. Um, did you, how old were you when you first saw it? Or I want to say, like, um, do you remember when you first saw actually, it? Actually, the first time I saw it was when I was um, 29. It was last year. Oh, really? So, mm-hmm. Yes. Do you enjoy the movie? I do. Mm-hmm. I like it. Is this your first time at the Sundown Film Festival? Yes, it is. Yeah? Are you having a good time? We are. We're having a great time. Good. It's a beautiful night out. It is a beautiful night. It's nice and cool. And what's, who's, what's his name? This is my son, Brayden, and he is eight months. Wow. And this is not his first time to watch it either. Really? Oh, he's seen Hoosiers before because yes. his older brother watches yes. it constantly. Yes. A long time ago, we used to be friends, but I haven't thought of you lately. And now it's time for another round of Six Degrees of William Allen White. And helping me out today is Assistant Museum Director Rebecca Martin and Assistant Registrar Nikayla Zimmerman. Ladies, how are you doing? I am pumped. <laughs> We're great. Awesome. Okay, so first we're going to start out, we're going to uh, resolve the challenge from the last episode, which was um, pretty astounding um, because it was connecting it to a fictional character. The challenge was to connect William Allen White to Harry Potter. And Akela, you have the solution. Go. So we all know that the Harry Potter series was written by J.K. Rowling. Author. J.K. Rowling has often cited one of her inspirations as being Jessica Mitford, who was... Stop it! (laughs) (laughs) Who was an author. She wrote um, a book called um, Hans and Rebels and also a book called The American Way of Death. Um, She was also a member of a pretty outrageous... um, What was the name of that second book? The American Way of Death. Yeah, it was an expose. Yeah, good times. Um, So she was also a member of this really outrageous aristocratic British family who um, two of her sisters were... um, pretty fascist and one of them um, married a man named Oswald Mosley can you say that I'm sorry to trip you up Nicole <laughs> can you tell everybody the sisters names because they're so sweet names compared <laughs> to what they were doing I won't be able to remember them all there's six sisters just the two who loved Hitler and um, the two that loved Hitler were Diana and unity yeah which, yeah so, Such beautiful names for somebody who <laughs> loved a fascist so yeah. just to clarify that Diana and unity were actually they were at the 1936 Olympics mm-hmm. um, in Berlin and they had a private meeting with Hitler, yes. closed door meeting. No one's really sure what happened. Yes, and Unity probably had a crush on Hitler. So, yeah, <laughs> great <laughs> she, girls. She loved Hitler. Okay, so um, Jessica's her sister Diana was married to Oswald Mosley. Um, Oswald Mosley became the leader of the British Fascist Party. Um, to start out with, though, he was a socialist and was a member of the British Fabian Society. Mosley was um, in this club. Another member was H.G. Wells, which we all know is the author of The Time Machine and War of the Worlds. Um, both men ran for office with the party in the 1920s. And, of course, William Allen White and H.G. Wells were good friends. Mm-hmm. So it goes from J.K. Rowling to Jessica, Jessica Mitford to Mosley to H.G. Wells to, to William, William Allen White. White. 
impressive. You connected him to a fictional character. (laughs) Especially since you kept doing it while we continually interrupted you. Yeah. That that was was a challenge, wasn't it? That was tough going because I have a hard time reading my notes when people are yelling, author, fascist. (laughs) Okay, so time for uh, the next challenge, which is a little different. Rebecca, do you want to tell us how the next challenge is going to work? Well, since Nikayla was able to connect William Allen White to Harry Potter, we're getting a little cocky here, and we're going to issue a challenge to our listeners. If any of you has an idea for a historical figure or character, you want us to find a connection to William Allen White, we want you to issue the challenge. Um, The only concern we have is that this person has a page in Wikipedia, and it's not one that you created on the fly before you (laughs) sent the email. So just somebody who's somewhat well-established, at least enough to have a page on Wikipedia. And email us. Merle will give you the email address at the end of this episode. And email us with the challenge. And if we cannot connect William Allen White to your mystery person, we will send you the free passes that have been languishing in my office but are still good for many months. (laughs) Right. So if you have um, a challenge, if you have somebody you want us to connect William Allen White to that's not your neighbor... Uh, just send it, send your challenge to podcasts at kshs.org. That is podcasts with an S. That concludes episode 34, Lone Shoe. Return in two weeks when curator Blair Tarr and I hit the links to swing our brassies and attend the flag. We're playing golf. And while there, we'll examine a set of clubs from one of Topeka, Kansas's earliest golfers. Find out what caddies had to say about a uniquely Kansas hazard, the cow pie. This podcast is a production of the Kansas State Historical Society. Where a soul meets pie.